0: And as we do, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you uh, that we can gather today your people, gather around your word, be taught by you, Lord. I just pray that, that as we're here and as we wrestle through the word of God, that uh, I would disappear, Lord, that each one of us would just disappear and that your spirit would work upon our hearts to bring about the life of Jesus Christ within us, Lord. I pray, God, that... Uh, as we look at this passage, we'd be encouraged to hold tightly to your word. I pray, Lord, that as we look at this passage, we would uh, that you would birth in us a fresh expectancy to look for your coming, for your return. I thank you, Jesus, that your return is the blessed hope of the church. And we thank you, Lord, this morning for your word. And we just pray, God, that you would birth something fresh in each one of our hearts this morning, that you would strengthen, that you would encourage, Lord. If there's need for correction and rebuke in our lives, God, that you would Uh, do that. And so father, we just uh, open up our hearts to you this morning. We open up our hearts to your spirit and we invite you to speak to us. Thank you, Lord, that your word is, is living. It's living and it's active and it's sharper than any double edged sword. I thank you, God, that it is the written word that leads us to you, Jesus, the living word. And so Jesus, we invite you to speak to us. God, we, we want to know you. We want to be known by you. And so would you speak to us? Lord, I remember uh, just Trevor and Ashley this morning. Uh, as they're getting ready right now, in a couple hours, tying the knot. And Lord, we just thank you for this young couple. They love you, Lord. And we pray your blessing upon them today, God. As they as they get ready, I pray that you would calm nerves, that you would calm anxieties. Father, I pray that they would be able to just take in the day and enjoy themselves with their family and with their friends. And as they pledge themselves to you and to one another in their love and their commitment. God, would you just bless them? And so, Father, we remember them this morning. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And actually, let's read through this whole little section on the church of Philadelphia. It says this in verse 7 And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me read to you again verse 7. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Um, You know, when you look at the, seven churches of revelation. Some uh, Bible teachers and Bible scholars kind of take the different churches and apply them to different points in history and church history from the time of Christ. And many would look at uh, the church of Philadelphia and and point to that being the church age that we live in, or that it's something common that you see. I know that uh, in regards to Calvary chapel churches, Uh, Pastor Chuck Smith has always seen Calvary Chapel as kind of like the church of Philadelphia. Little strength, but we hold to the word. And, um, you know, let me tell you a little bit about Philadelphia. Of course, we know that the city of Philadelphia, even the modern one that we have, is often referred to as the city of brotherly love. Now, the original Philadelphia was located in Asia minor. It was a strategic place. that was a gateway to the East. And so it was an important city in the Roman empire. And one of the characteristics about the city, because different things like this draw out what Jesus is saying to each one of these churches. But one of the characteristics about the city of Philadelphia was this, is that it was built on a geological fault line. And so tremors and earthquakes were a very common thing in that ancient city of Philadelphia. In fact, In the year 17 BC, the city was completely leveled by a large earthquake. And so people who lived in Philadelphia were were accustomed to tremors and to shaking. And uh, now Philadelphia, again, is uh, called the city of brotherly love. And of course, we know (laughs) as, as followers of Jesus Christ that we've been learning this in Peter, actually. That brotherly love is one of the things that is supposed to mark our lives. Uh, mark uh, the follower of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said that the world will recognize his follower, their love for it's Funny, we're not often known for that, are we? You know, especially in North America, the church is known for all sorts of different things, but not so often for our love for one another. I mean, even here within our our church family, there, there could be strife. You know, Sunday mornings doesn't always provide the greatest family. It's a great time to have conflict on Sunday morning. Have you ever noticed that in your house? Have you noticed that? And, um, you know, but brotherly love is something that we should be known for. And so, you know, we did something fun this week with one of the speakers. And I thought I'd do it this morning. But I think you should just maybe turn to the person and say to them next to you, I'm sorry and I love you. <laughs> No, seriously, could you do that? (laughs) Doesn't that feel better? Doesn't that feel better? I see kisses being exchanged and hugs and smiles. It's great. One of the beautiful things about this church in Philadelphia is this. Is, you know, you cruise the letters to the seven churches. We know that Jesus is rebuking a lot of these churches. But this is one of only two. That he comes not to bring a word of correction or rebuke, but a, a call to perseverance and an encourage, a word of encouragement because they are a faithful church. And Jesus gives this the description of this church to himself that he is the one who is holy and true. Jesus is holy. That means that he is completely set apart in his life, in his character, in his nature. He is separate from sin and set apart from anything, consecrated alone to the purposes of God. You know, to say that Jesus is holy in this sense is for him to declare that he himself is God. He is God, he is holy. His character is holy. His actions are holy. His words are holy in everything that he does. And in the very nature of his existence, he is consecrated and set apart unto God. You know, we know from the, the, the gospels that, that, Jesus disciples asked, asked their master, show us the father. And Jesus said this to them. I and the father are one. You know, the disciples said, just show us the father. That'll be enough for us. And he said, I and the father are one to see me is to see the father because I only do what the father tells me to do. He's holy, but he is also true. You know, the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. He's the real McCoy, the real deal. He's saying everything that I signify, everything that my name signifies is sincere. When it is said of me, my name, Jehovah is salvation. Yeshua, Jesus. It's genuine. It's real. It's ideal. It's true. It's sincere. Jesus is the original, not a copy, not a phony, not the counterfeit. He's not some manufactured thing of the imagination of man. Jesus is the authentic son of God. you know, in, in that ancient culture and even in our modern culture and time and day, there's hundreds of gods, little G goddesses. But Jesus here is making the rightful true claim to be God. And he says of himself, I hold the key of David. These are the words of him who is holy and true. And who holds the key of David? I love that picture. You know, the key is the key is a sign of authority, and the keeper of the key, him who is in the possession of the key, has the power to open and shut. You know, I was thinking about this as we're gearing up for uh, heading off to Israel. I I was recalling that one of the places that we'll go and see. You know, there's some of these spots. When you, go to, when you go to Israel, you see this constant tension between a relationship with Jesus Christ and religion. And you always have to remind yourself, this is religious and this is relationship. And there's just this tension. And one of the places that we go, we'll be going to that is very religious is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And if you know of that place, it's the place where it's believed Jesus' tomb was, the traditional place where they've built this very heavy orthodox religious church over at that spot. And one of the things about that church is that from the year 1244, 1244, the keys of that church have been in the possession of two Muslim families. The reason why? Well, partially because of the Muslims being in control at that point in time of the city, but also because of the constant fighting between the three groups, the three churches that share that building. The, the Franciscans, the Greeks, and the Armenians. They fight. And so every day, a Muslim family comes, and they hand over the key to one of those groups, and they take turns on who gets to open the door. Isn't it? I mean, that's terrible. Isn't it? Remember the first time your father gave you the keys to the car? That was awesome, man. He's handing you uh, power, you know, authority. Freedom. This is my car. You know, I remember my dad, this is my car. I make the payments. You, you're taking your life in your hands in more ways than one. When you take out my car, <laughs> show me respect, drive it carefully, respect the cars. Power. There's something a, a key is a picture of power. Of course I, you know, it represents authority, freedom, ownership, power. I, I've told you this before, but I like to tell this story on you know, my wife. Uh, course when she was 15 her parents were out of town and so she decided she'd take the family car for a drive and uh, so she took the keys and she drove from Cloverdale down to White Rock to hang out with her friends and went for a walk on the pier and I don't know what the heck she was doing but while she was on the pier she dropped the key for the family car and down it went swimming and she had to call her older brother who was much older and married already. And he came and bailed her out. And it was just a year or two ago that she told her mom that story. <laughs> <laughs> but Jesus is in possession of a key and it's called the key of David. Now we know about David. We know some things about David. David was God's chosen man. He's described in the scripture as a man who was after the heart of God. He was not chosen because of an appearance that he had or because, but, but because of the man who he was in his heart. God's choice, God's man, God's chosen king. The name David actually means beloved. The Lord loved David. And we know from the scriptures and from the Psalms that David loved God back and he worshiped the Lord. And so when Jesus says, I hold the key of David, he is saying that the, the rule and the, the kingship Of David that belonged to David is now mine. And I hold it in complete sovereignty and power. Jesus holds the key of David. He is in possession of complete power and dominion and control and rule. He is the supreme authority over all things. And thus he has dominion and power and the right to open whatever he wants and to close whatever he wants. And no one can do anything about it. See holding the key of David is about his sovereign power. As the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we think in the new Testament about uh, open doors. We see doors opening at different times for ministry and, and for churches in Acts chapter 14, when uh, Paul returned uh, to his home church in Antioch, he reported to them that God opened many doors for us to minister to the Gentiles. And Jesus Is the one who opens doors. Opens doors for the ministry of the church. Open doors for each of us to do ministry. It's Jesus who closes doors. I think about certain times when when we read in Acts that Paul said, the Holy Spirit did not allow us to go to such and such a place to minister. And so as the holy and true one who holds the key of David, Jesus has the authority... Uh, To do what he wants. And it will always perfectly reflect the will of his father in heaven. He opens and he shuts. And that's how it is. You know, it just makes me think of Jesus as the Lord of the harvest. As the head of the church. He determines when and where his church ministers. And we're going to see that for this church. He has opened a door for ministry. Look at verse eight. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you, you have kept my word and not denied my name. You know, as you study the churches of Revelation, one of the things you know, we see is that Jesus knows his churches very intimately. He knows this church. He knows CTK better than we know it. He, he walks in our midst even While we're here this morning and he knows the things that occupy his church. He knows the things that consume the time of his church. He knows the deeds of his church. And as Jesus talks about this church in Philadelphia, he has has nothing to say to them in regards to condemning them or against the deeds of their church. What he says to this church is I'm opening a door for you. I'm going to give you an opportunity for a fresh ministry for something new. And we read here that he says that you, you only have a little strength. Not great strength. You have a little strength. Uh, you know, it's, maybe this church will never be something powerful or strong. Maybe it'll never be something that's going to turn the world upside down. But there, there is some strength here. And I, you know, I just love that picture. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I have very little strength when it comes for serving the things of God. Man, God, seriously, you called me to do this, or you call one of us to do this, or that. I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel equipped, I don't feel like I have this skill. I, God, set your grace upon our lives. But you know, one of the things about the kingdom of God is this, is that the math doesn't always seem to add up. Sometimes it works backwards in the kingdom of God. We see in the scripture that God seems to prefer to use those who have little strength so that he gets all the glory. You know, if God was to use someone with great strength, then they'd see the man and worship the man. Or worship the church. Or whatever it might be. Instead of the God who is working through the man or through that church. And so it's God's pattern to use the weak. To use those with little strength. So that people look at the man and go, no, God must be at work. God must be at work. You know, it's just interesting this week as we were... Down at the conference, we heard from a number of different pastors and, um, you know, guys coming out of uh, the Jesus people movement of the 70s and they're just, you know, telling their stories and their lives and you're thinking, seriously, God, that guy has a church and a ministry the way, it? you know, this one guy got up there and I mean, I don't know what to say, but except that he's crazy, except for God's work and his life almost. And yet he's planted hundreds of church and had a ministry that, that's just been far-reaching and you can just sense the presence of God that he's working through little human strength for the glory of his name as people just faithfully teach your word. See, that's how God, I think, prefers to work. Using the weak. Using those with just little strength so that he receives the glory and the praise and the honor. And so, you know, I I want to encourage you. When you feel of little strength, that's okay. It's great. That's a good position. Cast yourself upon the Lord and trust Him to work through you when you feel like that. Because we want people to see Christ in us. The issue is not spiritual strength, but faithfulness. The issue is not your strength, but your availability for the Lord. The issue is not your strength. But will you have a teachable heart and a heart that listens when the Holy Spirit calls you to do something? You know, God said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so this church in Philadelphia only has a little strength, but it has something strongly in its favor, which Jesus commends them for. And he says this, you've kept my word. You have not denied my name. No wonder Jesus opens the door for these guys. That's what I would say. You know, and what I love about this picture of an open door is it, it, it takes no effort to, to open it because it's already open. Jesus opened it. He made a clear path, a direction for this church. And all they have to do is walk through it. Which is good because they're weak. They have little strength. And the best they can do is walk through what God opens up for them. You know, it reminded me of a story. When we were uh, in in Surrey working as youth pastors, uh, one of the things our youth group loved to do, we had a great church for running around playing Capture the Flag in. And uh, we'd split the church up in a certain way, and we'd open up all the doors so all the rooms, you could just run through that place. And if only our senior pastor knew what was going on. It was awesome. And, And so we were playing Capture the Flag, and one time I came running down this long hallway and turned the door to going to the sanctuary, and the door was locked. And so I unlocked the door. It just was pins on the top. I yelled, don't lock the doors. Leave them open. And then I came around again 10 minutes later, and the door was locked, and I unlocked the doors and flipped them open. Don't lock the doors. Don't lock the doors. Leave them open. The third time I came around, I had a flag in my hand, and I was running full tilt. And came around the corner, And the doors were locked. And whammo, I hit those doors and broke the frame, popped the pins out of the door, smashed them to pieces. And there were some youth kids who had to help me fix them all. It's a terrible thing to run into a locked door. And when you don't have the key, there's no point trying to wrestle with something that God has closed. Leave it alone. If you sense God has closed some door to ministry in your life or whatever it is, don't expend the energy wrestling with it. Instead, look for the doors that Jesus Christ is opening. Leave those things to him. He's holy. He's true. He knows best. But when he opens a door for you, then step through it with great faith, trusting that he wants to work. And so this church that has little strength is commended for guarding and taking care of the word of God commended for carefully observing God's word, which I think is awesome because we live in a day and age when many churches uh, are not faithfully guarding God's word, not faithfully proclaiming Jesus Christ, not faithfully teaching uh, the word of God. And it's one of the things that I appreciate so much about uh, how our church meets and gathers. And each Sunday we we just teach the word of God line upon line and verse upon verse and precept upon precept and chapter upon chapter and we put our roots down in Jesus Christ and we proclaim the word. We teach the word. This church in Philadelphia, they've, they've not denied Jesus' name, which is important. He says, my name is holy and true. I think of Psalm 138, which, Jesus, or which, which tells us, The psalmist wrote that God is exalted above all things, his name and his word. And those two things, this church has hung on to the name of Jesus, the name above all other names, the only name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus that every knee at that name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. See, Philadelphia received no word of condemnation. This is is a church that had right doctrine. They had right living, which works hand in hand. When you have right doctrine, it will produce right living. And Jesus promised, I will open doors for you. I'll open doors for this loving group who who proclaims my word, who's faithful to my name, and who practices brotherly love. I'm going to give them an opportunity to reach the lost. Now Verse 9 says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. And one of the obstacles that this church faced was the opposition from some in their community. It's often what happens to the church, opposition from the community at different times. And Jesus called this particular group the synagogue of Satan. That's a great, that's a great, Title for the opposition. Uh, And obviously, then we could conclude that that this hostile group was satanically inspired. It was not a battle against flesh and blood. It was not a battle maybe of Jew versus Gentile or Christian versus non-Christian. But it was a a battle against principalities and powers that were coming against the work of the church. As they sought to just faithfully uh, follow Jesus Christ. This was a spiritual battle. Maybe just this reference to them being called the synagogue of Satan uh, gives us that picture that maybe the opposition was, was those Jewish legalists that we see throughout uh, the New Testament. Possible. Just reminds me that lineage and line of descent has nothing to do uh, with our salvation, but it's about knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. But somehow this synagogue of Satan was causing trouble for the church Maybe they were seeking to bring legalism into the church. Maybe they were slandering the followers of Jesus around the city. Whatever it was, though, it was lies. And Jesus planned to expose it, we see. He he planned to expose it, the fact that they were liars. You know, think about Satan. He is God's adversary. He is the adversary of Jesus. He is the adversary of God's people, the church. Jesus being defined for us as the holy and true one. What does that leave for Satan? If everything that Jesus does is both holy and true. All that Satan is left to combat God with. And the people of God with is lies. He's called the father of lies. All he can do is make false accusations. And and lie to God's people about. uh, Lie to those who are experiencing the the saving redemptive work of the cross. And so Jesus plans, we see for this church to expose his nature by the truth. You know, uh, the scripture tells us that one day the people of Israel will recognize the identity of Jesus Christ as their Messiah, Messiah. But before they do, the scripture prophesies and tells us that they will first lay hold of a man whom they will declare to be their Messiah as a nation. They will uh, follow him because of his ability to politically lead them, but he will be exposed as a false Messiah as the Antichrist. And then the Hebrew people will realize that they were wrong all along about Jesus Christ. And at that time, Zechariah chapter 12 prophesies that at that time, God will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for his firstborn on that day. The weeping in Jerusalem will be great. And so I I, I mean, I don't know a little bit of speculation as you think of this synagogue of Satan. Maybe it is in regards to speaking of Jewish folks who have not followed Jesus Christ and recognized him to be their Messiah, but one day they will. And when that happens, uh, when the Hebrew people recognize that the church was right all along in proclaiming Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the saving one, they, they will recognize that God loves his church and that that God loves the world, not just one people group, that he's not saved just on the basis of lineage and birth, but he saves by his grace as we put our faith and trust in him. Amen. Verse 10 says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The promises. That are made here to the church of Philadelphia are awesome. And they're incredibly important promises. I would say to even understanding uh, Bible prophecy and God's timetable in the world. Jesus says about this church, this church of Philadelphia, that since they have kept his command to endure patiently, since they have held to his name, since they have held to his word with the little strength that they have, that he promises them that he is going to keep the church of Philadelphia from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the world. See, the Lord has a special plan that will keep the church of Philadelphia, a plan that will keep all true believers uh, from the worldwide hour of trial, the tribulation that is going to come. The hour of trial is that the great tribulation. That is the reference there. And the church of Philadelphia has promised that God will keep them not through that hour, but that he will keep them from that hour. Now when we, you know, back, we actually went through revelation uh, last year. It was pretty fun. It was challenging to teach, but last year we went through it and, and we saw that in the first number of chapters, in fact, the first three chapters of the book of revelation that 19 times the church is mentioned until revelation chapter four, verse one. And then from there on the church is never mentioned again in the book of Revelation, Because God is going to keep the church from the hour of trial, the great tribulation. We call it the rapture, the being caught up to meet the Lord in the air, the blessed hope of the church. And you know, this week just at our, our pastor's conference, we were reminded That when God works powerfully in in the world, one of the things that people hold to is the the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. That blessed hope looking for his coming. You know, we heard the funniest story from one of the pastors there. In fact, he he pastors one of the 10 largest churches in the U.S. And he was telling us that when he first got saved, he became the Sunday school, one of the Sunday school guys at his church in Vegas. He'd worked as a a selling drugs and supplying drugs musicians with whatever they need when they come to Vegas and he had gotten saved and connected himself into the church and he became known as Mr. Bob and he played this character with the kids and he said what everybody didn't know about my life was that all those years that I was serving as Mr. Bob for the first two years. I, I was smoking at the same time and so I, I'd, I'd, I'd leave church and be in my car having a puff driving home and, and he, he told us this story that One day leaving church, um, he was driving down the road and stopped at a light and was having a puff on his cigarette and a family from the church pulled up beside him and the kid in the backseat said, hey mom. Mr. Bob. And here he's puffing on this cigarette and just how God began to work in his life and set him free from that. And he was talking about how in those days is, is he would go outside his house to have a smoke. He'd be looking for the return of Jesus Christ as a new believer. He'd step out the door of his house. And if there were, No clouds in the sky. Okay, I can, I I, I better make this a quick one. It's just a two puffer because Jesus could show up. It was just the funniest story. He said, if there was clouds in the sky, then I I had time to have this smoke and to finish it. But just talking about the expectancy that we should have looking for the return of Jesus Christ. And the view of our church, the doctrinal place that we take is that we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church of Jesus Christ. We believe that before that hour of great trial and before God begins to try the earth dwellers that he will first remove his church. He will remove his church. Of course, we know that there are different viewpoints that people take on this, you know, some people would say the church is raptured before the great tribulation. Some people would say that they believe that the church is raptured in the middle of the tra- tribulation. I mean, it can be all kind of confusing. Some people believe that the church will be raptured at the end of the great tribulation. I worked with a pastor who said, you know, I don't believe any of those. I, 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 I'm a pan-tribber. I believe it will just all pan out when we get there. <laughs> Which, you know, is humorous. It's witty. But to me, you know, I really think that it denies what the scripture teaches us is the blessed hope of God's people. The promise of Christ's return is meant to be a source of hope. You know, when I personally think of the other views, I, I think that the fruit of them can be fear that we must endure at least in part or if not all of the great tribulation You know, one of the reasons that I hold to the pre-tribulation view is this, is just the simple thing that it says, we're looking for Christ, not the antichrist. We are looking for the coming of our savior, not the coming of some political leader. In fact, look at, look at verse uh, 10 again for me. It says this, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. It's really interesting to just do a study on the earth dwellers, what are referred to as earth dwellers here. And you'll find that it's different than the church. And you'll see that in different spots in in the book of Revelation, that term, the dwellers on the earth. And so, you know, the the great tribulation is known as a time in scripture of, uh, it's known as the time of Jacob's trouble. That is a reference to Israel and to the people of the world. Uh, Jacob, that name Jacob speaks of the unredeemed man. Jacob, when God worked in his life, was given a new name. His name is Israel. And so that name Jacob does not reference the saving work that God has done in the the nation of Israel. It's it's talking about the pre-redeemed man. And so the blessed hope, you know, I encourage you to just Stir that in your own heart to be looking for the coming of Christ. You know, when we, when we set our hope on, on the return of the Lord, Jesus Christ, it brings good fruit for us. It it, it builds an anticipation as we follow Christ. It puts in our hearts an urgency to be sharing the gospel. It creates an attitude of expectation, looking for the coming of the Lord. Look at verse 11 said, I'm coming soon. That word Soon. It means he's coming suddenly, unexpectedly. I'm coming soon. Hold fast, secure, and tighten what you have so that no one may seize your crown. See, the coming of Jesus Christ for his church will happen quickly. And so we're instructed from the scripture in many, many places to always be ready to be prepared to keep our lamps trimmed and burning as the church waits for the return of Jesus Christ. We're called to be God's word, to not deny the name of Jesus, to faithfully proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He told, he calls this church to hold on to what you have. Tighten your grip on what you have. You know, I encourage you be a student of the word of God, be a student of the things of God. Uh, the, the idea here is, as it calls us to tighten Tighten your grip. It means means be the chief. Be the master of these things. Know them and own them. And the promise is a crown. The crown, of course, is a a, a royal symbol. A prize awarded to victors. Those who overcome. Verse 12 says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. To those who overcome, to those who are victorious, holding on to the promises of God, holding on to the word of God, not denying the name of Jesus, the Lord says this, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. We've actually been studying this a little bit in our in, in First Peter about how the Lord is building a temple, not a physical temple, but a spiritual temple, and that we are being formed into His house. Now, pillar, if you can imagine, you know, in the ancient kind of way that it's applied here, is a, is a an important thing in engineering a building in the structure of a building. A pillar is a column that supports weight. It, it, it supports the weight of a stru- uh, of a structure. You know, these pillars even that are in this room here, they, they bear the responsibility of holding up the weight of this building. And metaphorically to be a pillar in God's temple is to be one who, who bears weight, who bears a responsibility, who has a permanent position, a spiritual authority. And so Jesus is building an, a, a heavenly temple uh, that, that is made up of people where he will dwell. It's pretty cool symbolism. You know, I think, I think of these people, of Philadelphia, remember what, what was the, one of the things geologically about their city was this, it was shaken by tremors that they never knew when they could be shaken. They never knew when their house could come down or a building could collapse. Like back in the year 17, when the whole city was leveled and to this city, Jesus promises, you will become a pillar to, I mean, to this church. You will not have to fear earthquakes. You will not have to fear shakings. You will not flee for your life. I will put you in the structure of my temple and nothing will destroy you. And you will bear weight in the kingdom of God. Be my representative. You know, even in ancient times, I, we know that pillars were erected and sometimes they would be given a name. You see that when Solomon built the temple, he, 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 he named the two main pillars of the temple in the honor of a couple important people. Now, God's pillars, again, they're, they're not made of stone because there's no, there's no physical temple in the heavenly city. It's a temple made up of people. And these pillars are faithful people who have been faithful to the name of God, faithful to his word. And on those saints, Jesus said, I'll write a name. Just like Solomon put a name. On the pillars in the Old Testament temple. The Lord Jesus in the heavenly Jerusalem. Will put. On the, on the capital of heaven. Will put his name on us. A new name. He'll write on us. I imagine a name. Which speaks in respect of him. Revealing him and himself to us in new ways. He'll make himself known to us in greater ways. No longer will we look at him. Through a glass dimly. But we will see him face to face. And in an unprecedented experience. Uncommon to anything we've ever known. We will know the Lord. Beyond our human knowledge. I, I mean it will be novel. It will be unheard of. And he will reveal. Uh, see a name is about revealing character. A name tells us about. In, in the Bible tells us about the character. And the, the nature of a person. The name Jesus. Yeshua. Like I mentioned earlier, it means the Lord is salvation. In ancient biblical Hebrew, the, the language actually has no vowels. In modern Hebrew, they've added vowels to the language to make it easier to read. But ancient Hebrew has no vowels. And so, you know, actually from the Bible, nobody knows how to properly say the name of God. And so we say two different names. We say Yahweh and we say Yehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. Those are basically the same, they are the same Hebrew consonants with different vowels placed into those names. Just trying to guess at what the name of God is. See, no one truly knows the name of God. But to the faithful church, the name of God will be revealed. He'll reveal his character to us in unimaginable ways. It says, never shall he go out of that temple. Now, verse 13 says this, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. You know, Jesus has set before us, I think many open doors in this community to do ministry. And I encourage you, where you sense God opening doors in your life, step through them. When It seems like he's closed doors patiently wait until he opens again or points you in a new direction. But in that, in the meantime, let's be a church. Let's be people who continue to hold to the name of Jesus, who hold to the word of God. You know, I think in the days to come, the church is going to face much pressure to deny Christ, to let go of the word. And we see that happening more and more in our culture, but we must Keep in mind that Jesus is coming quickly. It'll be sudden. It'll be unexpected. And we need to be ready. We need to be a people who are ready. Let's pray this morning. Worship team, you guys can come up here. Stand with me as we pray. Jesus, I just thank you for CTK, I thank you for this church. I thank you for each and every person here. And Lord, first of all, I just ask God that you would make us a church that grows in brotherly love. I pray God that we would grow in our love for one another, that as we grow in our love for you, Lord, it would be reflected in our relationships one to another. I pray God that as people walk through the doors of this place, they would sense the grace of God. I pray that they would sense your, your presence here with us. I pray, God, that they would sense that they're loved by God's people. And so, Lord, I just pray that, that you'd make your love and your grace known even right now to every heart, to every mind, Lord, to every person here, that they would sense your love for them and that they would sense that God's people love them. I thank you, Lord, that you just take us as we are. But I thank you even more, Lord, that you don't leave us as, our, as we are you conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we ask for your help, that you would help us with the little strength that we have to continue to cling to your word. We ask, Lord, that with the little strength that we have, that we would not deny your name, Lord, but that we would proclaim you, Jesus, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and as the Savior of the world. We ask, Jesus, that you would open doors for us Father, at, at CTK, we ask God that you'd give us open doors into this community to proclaim Christ. We ask, Lord, that you'd give us open doors in our various workplaces to share our faith. We ask, Lord, that you would give us open doors with our neighbors and with those in our lives who don't know you. We, we ask, God, that, that we would be quick to identify, Lord, when you were opening a door and to, to go for it. God, and we're your closing doors we pray that you'd make that very clear for us. God, I pray that you would birth in our hearts in a fresh way as a church, as your people, a heart that is expectantly looking for your return. God, living with that at the forefront of our mind all the time, living with urgency, Lord, uh, living with expectation of your coming and being bold to share our faith. Now we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that we find there. And Lord, uh, we ask that you would just do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's let's close with a song this morning.